Hello. <laughs> that sounded stupid. <laughs> Off to a strong start. <laughs> ah, okay. Hello, listeners. Um, it has been a bit, but we are back. I am Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. So I think I owe all of y'all an explanation for why it has been a minute since you've heard the last um, episode of, of Understand South Carolina. So obviously, the, the last one published in December. Um, and we'd always planned to sort of take a, a holiday break, winter break, as you will, in a, around Christmas and New Year's. And then um, my co-host, Brooks Brunson, around the same time, got this like dream job offer from The New Yorker. And uh, of course, took it. Of course, we're, we're we're very proud of her and very excited for her for her uh, great new uh, opportunity up in New York. I talked to her recently, and I know she's loving it. And uh, definitely, definitely misses us here and misses all of y'all. But you know, the upshot is that that threw <laughs> a pretty substantial wrench into our uh, production schedule because uh, not only did I lose my uh, production partner, but my co-host, and also at the same time needed to take on a lot more roles here at the paper running our, our digital operation. So what was planned to be kind of a, a short winter break sort of turned into an extended hiatus while we figured out what we wanted to do with the show. Uh, good news is you're hearing the show because we figured out what we want to do with it. So we're back. My host or my co-host today is Emily Williams, who you might remember from a previous appearances on the show, Friend of the Pod. But um, first time hosting, Emily, do you want to, for people that don't remember, do you want to give yourself kind of a quick introduction and let people know what your deal is? Definitely. What my deal is. Your, I don't know. What your whole deal is. What's uh, your deal? <laughs> so I am a reporter on our business desk, friend of the pod. I have been on a couple times, uh, once to talk about hotels and um, another to talk about a big uh, museum debacle in Mount Pleasant. Um, enjoyed both times so much that I wanted to come back in the studio and um, talk today. Uh, but yeah, I am a reporter on our business desk. I write our business newsletter and um, excited to be back on the pod. Yeah, excited to have you here. Also excited to be joined today by Caitlin Bird, a political reporter. And uh, what we've got Caitlin here to talk about is obviously... Uh, coming up in a, just a couple of days, South Carolina is going to vote in a, its a Democratic primary. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, it's so great to be back. And it's nice to step away from the screens, from the town halls, from the campaign events and be here with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I can't I cannot express enough how hectic this season has been, I wish I could say that I took a hiatus, but it has yeah. been overdrive on the politics desk right now. I think to kind of launch us into this discussion, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our colleagues uh, up in Columbia, Jamie Lovegrove, mm -hmm. another political reporter here at the Post and Courier, um, reported this like pretty interesting and kind of surprising story, uh, really did well on online. Um, it was like our top story for, for several oh, days. Yeah. <laughs> But, okay, so the upshot of that is that the there's this group um, in the upstate of South Carolina who has come up with kind of this plan inspired by Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> uh, named after his, his idea in 2008 called Operation Chaos. Basically, the idea is 
So South Carolina has an open primary, meaning you don't have to be a Democrat to vote in the Democratic primary, and you don't have to be a Republican to vote in the Republican primary. You can just show up and, and vote. You you have to choose one. Mm-hmm. That's you correct. Can't, can't, can't vote do both. In, can't vote in both, but you you get to pick. And, and of course, this year, there's not, we've talked about it before, there mm-hmm. might have been a, uh, a could challenge, been. could have been a challenge to, to Trump, but it, there's not going to be. So if you're a Republican, you really have nothing to lose by voting in the Democratic primary. Right. I mean, unless you really want to get on Democrat mailing lists. Well, I mean, that's that's the risk you take. But <laughs> but, to, but to your point, you're right. There is no piece of paper that someone has to sign. There's no oath they have to take about what voting in this standalone presidential primary means for them as a voter. We do not register voters in South Carolina mm-hmm. by political party. That's the other part of our interesting equation here in South Carolina. That means when you register to vote, you just register. You give the address, you have your ID, but you don't have to declare whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're an independent like some other states do. Um, On the one hand, that creates a true open democracy, right? It allows anybody who may have an interest in letting their voice be heard and casting a ballot to go out and do so, and to do so on a Saturday, which is a fun and interesting quirk about South Carolina that only applies to the presidential preference primaries. Yep. It's so interesting. This is my first presidential primary uh, in South Carolina, living in South Carolina, and I was so surprised to find out that it's on a Saturday. Yeah, interesting little history tidbit. It was actually... Uh, something that Republicans really pushed, and Republicans really are the the ones that get to take the credit for helping South Carolina get its first in the South status broadly when talking about presidential primaries. Yes, the Democrats did do their own, but it was really Republicans who led that charge. And the reason that they wanted to hold them on Saturdays was because they wanted blue-collar workers to be able to take that time off, to not be at work to cast a ballot. So it's really interesting because, you know, fast forward all these years later. It's a big Democratic talking and point. And now, now it's yeah. a big Democratic talking point. And it's still a Republican talking point about blue-collar workers being left behind. Right. And ergo, now we have the primary on Saturday. We don't have true, quote-unquote, early voting in the state, but there are ways that you can cast a ballot in advance of the February 29th primary mm-hmm. So we do have it, but they just don't use that word. Yeah, no, I mean it's it that is an interesting an interesting piece of history because it certainly is the case that today I think it, it's a pretty common cause amongst uh, a lot of progressives to the idea that you know maybe uh, election day ought to be a national holiday or maybe it ought to be on weekends. Um, basically, just any way to make it easier to vote because it you know it is kind of random. And it, this is obviously part of, like, America's early history, the idea that it happens, like, on this random Tuesday in November. So, yeah, that, that, is, that is unusual that, that we, we vote on, on Saturday for this. Right. And so kind of circling back to this point about kind of what are the political implications of an open primary, that means that you have this question that emerges almost every time doesn't have to come up in a presidential primary to have been discussed. It happened in the first congressional district primary way back when a man named Dimitri Cherney, who had previously run as a Democrat, ran as a Republican. Um, So Republicans are very upset about that. The man has a Bernie Sanders tattoo on his forearm. (laughs) So uh, 
That's commitment. Yeah. So uh, look for more on that from our politics editor, Skylar Croft. And basically, it sets up this scenario where there's always this concern from the parties to some extent, whether it's simmering beneath the surface or whether it's more emboldened for the first time as we saw this go round, as to whether or not the other party is going to vote and try to negatively impact the results. Right. In this case, the concern is that Republicans will vote and vote for Bernie Sanders because Sanders is perceived by Republicans to be the best candidate to go up against President Donald Trump because they claim that Trump could beat him in a general election in November. Sanders' campaign will certainly uh, respond and say, no, that's not true. We have polling that shows the opposite. Everybody thinks they're a winner. The only winner that matters is what the voters decide. That's all I'll say about that. But it, it, it does create a really interesting dynamic here in South Carolina when we're looking at February 29th and compared to the rest of an election cycle and year, this is really the Democrats' big day in the sun. They don't get much else in this state. Joe Cunningham's win in the first congressional district was a huge surprise. Um, and for the most part, this is a this is a Republican-controlled, Republican-dominated state. The governor is Republican. Both bodies of the legislatures are controlled by a Republican body. Five of the seven congressional districts are Republican, and both of the U.S. senators are Republican. So Democrats get two seats in Congress. They do have, obviously, a smattering of Democrats in the State House, But at the end of the day, Republicans are very proud to tell you that this is a red state. Oh, yeah. And Democrats are just renting it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things Emily and I were talking about in preparing for the show is just how interesting it is that that juxtaposition between the idea of South Carolina being this ruby red Republican stronghold. And then, you know, every four years, it's got this weird role in the Democratic primary process that's really important and that really highlights a different part of the South Carolina electorate that otherwise is, is kind of overlooked. Yeah, exactly. So what's interesting is on the Republican presidential primaries, it's considered to be one of the best bellwethers for who will go on to be the Republican presidential nominee because South Carolina has picked it every time with one exception. Now, on the Democratic side, it's not so much about how the Democrats here in South Carolina may be emblematic of republic of national Republican attitude. Instead, South Carolina's Democratic presidential primary really holds this unique role of being the first uh, indicator as to where African-American voters may be leaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's a really unique and special responsibility that South Carolina has. Uh, it's one that I know that a lot of Democrats here take very seriously, even though they're fairly new at it when compared to like states like Iowa that have been doing this for a very long time. And New Hampshire that is very proud about its first in the in the nation primary. You know, South Carolina is still kind of the new kid on the early four block. It's going to it's really, really fascinating to see how South Carolina always seems to insert itself into the national political conversation that happens about what is the direction of these respective parties? So there's a group of Republicans in the upstate, right, that announced that they were trying to uh, encourage uh, Republicans, right, to vote for Bernie Sanders. And that is two goals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the first being that they feel President Trump has the best chance of winning in the general election if he's facing Bernie Sanders, right, mm-hmm. as his opponent, And then the second, and I almost find this one the more interesting element of it, 
is uh, kind of getting Democrats to the thinking that the primary should be closed. Right. Right. So that uh, that and that truly is the nugget that kind of gets lost in some of the national reporting that has happened um, as a result of our reporting. Um, You're right. There has been a huge push among Republicans in recent years to try and get South Carolina to consider a closed primary system. They had a resolution that they voted on at their convention. It passed. They really want it to happen. One of the reasons why parties in particular may be more inclined to a closed party system is because it can give them better data. If they can have people who are self-identifying as Republicans, that sure as heck is a lot easier than trying to guess if someone's a Republican based on their voting role history and based on if they do turn out in presidential primaries like this one. So it's it's a really interesting thing because on the one hand, even just this very public push, which has gotten national attention, is accomplishing so many things for the mm-hmm. South Carolina Republican mm-hmm. Party because it is a twofold push and potentially a, a threefold push because part of that argument for Republicans nationally who want to see Senator Sanders at the top of the ticket is that then they can campaign and message off of that all day long and try to make every Democrat a socialist Democrat. Right. So there's a lot to unpack there. But what's interesting is that while this has been a concern about kind of the backlash of uh, an open primary, about the idea of meddling, the other thing is whether or not this push may actually have some legs. Um, we have been wondering whether or not it may rise to that fruition because we're even seeing letters to the editor. One was published just recently in the Aiken Standard from the Aiken County GOP in which this uh, the leader wrote that he, at first, when he heard about this Operation Chaos, was saying, no, you know, let's not do that. Let's not meddle. That's really not what we should be doing. We should take the high road. But then he writes that the impeachment inquiry which he perceived to be a Democratic-led sham, now he is saying, you know what? Let's do it. And so that's the fact that this drumbeat isn't going away, that it's not just going to be isolated Mm -hmm. to that upstate group which it originated with, the fact that Aiken County GOP is saying, let's do it, it sets up a really interesting dynamic because it has created now, because it's so public, a real conversation on the ground. This isn't something that's happening quietly amongst the parties being like, hey, I'm really worried that the Democrats are going to come vote in our stuff. Or Democrats are like, hey, I'm really worried that GOP is going to come vote. Now there may be some real concentrated, organized, open push. This also, of course, raises questions if Sanders were to perform very well, if if not when. I mean, right, there would be no way for us to know if that had an outsized influence. Right. right? It, it definitely sets up a storyline of if Sanders were to win in South Carolina, how much Republicans would take credit for that win. And at, at how the, much would his would his uh, opponents want to cast exactly it as a, as a that too. not valid victory? Exactly. So it sets up all kinds of complications, but we don't say this, you know, and sh- we didn't write the story to strike fear into people. We wrote about it because we have never seen something so brazen right. before. Yeah, um, yeah. I-, I mean, I think thinking back to like just the history of of our open primary, mm-hmm. at, 
like it, it's not an unusual thing for people to think about voting strategically. I think, you know, due to South Carolina's Republicanness, I, I think it's maybe actually a little bit more common for Democrats to probably cross over and vote in, in Republican primaries, of course, depending on, you know, who who's on the ballot and, and what the stakes are. But I think that's not an uncommon thing for, for Democrats to feel like, you know, maybe I'm going to maybe my vote's going to matter a little bit more if I try to pick maybe like a more moderate Republican than, you know, vote in the Democratic primary. I mean, of course, everybody has, has different thoughts about, about that and, and different motives. Uh, but yeah, I think that that's really unusual that the idea of like a real organized effort. I, I haven't seen that before. Right. We've, we just have we just haven't. It's it's unprecedented. And I feel like we are almost wearing out that term since 2016. Uh, yeah. Everything well, that, since 2016 appears to be unprecedented. That, that does that does remind me, because um, one thing I wanted to bring up, the very first thing that I thought about when I read the story Rewinding time way back to to like 10,000 years ago when it was uh, early or late 2015, early 2016, which feels like forever ago. I remember when President Trump first got into that election, into that election cycle, into that mm-hmm. Republican primary, uh, back when before a lot of people were necessarily taking him very seriously. You know, I remember there being discussions you know, online amongst some Democrats. And, and I remember people kind of throwing out the idea, well, you know, maybe maybe Trump would be a good candidate to run against with a lot of the same thinking that this GOP group is is using. The idea being that, oh, Trump is is so controversial. His his negatives are, are so high. His, his message um, is so polarizing. You know, maybe he'd be the strongest candidate to go up against. Of course, we know how that turned out. So that was kind of my very first thought is, is maybe is that people maybe ought to be a little bit careful about what they wish for. Politics is, is maybe a little bit more volatile than where uh, when we take it for granted, you know. One thing that is of concern for political scientists is that um, pretty much by definition and, and also especially by design, primaries are really meant to get your most engaged members of the party out to the polls. Usually the general election is truly general for a reason. It's meant to be more broad. Maybe people who aren't party activists, who aren't as engaged with um, with specific political parties. Um, and so for political scientists and also for political watchers and for political reporters like me, it certainly begs the question as to whether or not primaries in some extent are perpetuating the the fringe parts of parties or the more extremes. I don't, almost don't want to use the word fringe because then that has a specific connotation, but it, it does beg the question whether or not it is pushing the right more right and pushing the left more left. And so it's, it's a really interesting time yeah. <laughs> in American politics and then the fact that South Carolina is seemingly always in the middle of it is really, really fun for me. Right. I think that question of electability, who on the other side do you want as your opponent for the better chance to to win? It's just it's just so interesting. And definitely one of the things that 2016 taught us is we may think we know what the outcomes are going to be, but um, we definitely don't until we actually see those vote, votes come in. So in terms of electability, what things are looking like here in in South Carolina. I think it'd be great if we can talk through some of the candidates and kind of what's their narrative here in South Carolina so far, starting with with Sanders. You know what? He's obviously coming off of some momentum. 
in the last um, few weeks leading up to the primary here, what are you seeing in terms of um, Sanders and voters and what they're thinking here? Well, that that's you're right. It's going to be really interesting. Um, Sanders in particular has a lot to prove in South Carolina, maybe more so than some of the other candidates. In 2016, um, he failed abysmally in South Carolina when he was going up against Hillary Clinton. He lost in every single county. He left the state uh, before the results were tabulated, and he continued on in a Super Tuesday. But once South Carolina voted, it was very clear at that point in the delegate counting cycle that Bernie Sanders would probably not go much further. And so Sanders, if we wind it up back to 2019, because that's how long these candidates have been campaigning here. Bernie Sanders came to South Carolina, specifically North Charleston, a majority African-American city just north of us, way before he even announced, like months before he announced. He returned to that same church where he went and and then talked about his candidacy further once he had announced. Um, he did not announce here in South Carolina, but he made the point of stopping here to do a gut check on whether or not he should proceed. Um, so Sanders this time really has almost his ceiling is is pretty much as high as it can go because the thinking is he can't do much worse than he did last time. At the same time, there is a lot to prove, especially his support among African-Americans. Um, he only won about 14 or 16 percent of the vote from African-Americans in 2016. So he's got a lot to prove. And that demographic is crucial in South Carolina. African-American voters account for roughly 60% of likely Democratic presidential primary voters. So there's a reason why we talk a lot about people of color and voters of color in this state, because they hold so much power in the Democratic presidential primary. So Bernie, in many ways, has been campaigning on what Bernie does best, uh, Medicare for all. He hasn't really changed his tune and shifted that much since 2016. The people who were with him before appear, for the most part, with some exceptions, to be with him again. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the ideas that he was pitching the last go-round have become a little bit more palatable to Democrats. Elizabeth Warren is a really good example. I'm not saying that Warren is an exact echo of Sanders, but— some of his ideas that seem maybe more out there don't seem so out there anymore and have been yeah. accepted. So Bernie is Bernie is running as Bernie. <laughs> He's really just moving forward. Um, Biden, if, if we want to move into that, because Biden really is the name that comes up a lot when we're talking about the South Carolina Democratic primary. And the reason is that he's been polling at the top for more than a year. Right. He's still polling at the top. Um, but his lead is narrowing, and that's raising some eyebrows not only here in the state but also nationally mm -hmm. as to what this may signal since he did have poor showings in Iowa and New Hampshire. We'll see what happens in Nevada because we are recording this on the Friday before. Yeah. Uh, so we're missing a data point. But if he he is pretty much at this point uh, banked everything on South Carolina. He, the Biden campaign is hoping – and counting on South Carolina Democrats to vote for Joe Biden, then propel him to a momentum in the Super Tuesday states where about 40% of the delegates from the whole shebang are going to be decided and cast. And so if that happens, I mean, it sets up this really interesting dynamic moving forward as to whether or not South Carolina is going to be this pause and reset right. point for the Democratic race so far, or whether it's going to— kind of continue as it has so far, which has been not really providing a ton of clarity about who's going to emerge and whether or not there's going to be a contested convention right. down the line. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I guess like the so the brass tacks of, of like the way that the primary calendar works is that like it there there's this day Super Tuesday coming up. That's when mm-hmm. like all the big states um, fifteen yeah, fifteen will vote fifteen so. will vote, and that including California. Yeah, and, and so like after the South Carolina primary, there's gonna have been four states that have weighed in, and they're not especially big states. the The delegate count is not gonna be like it. It'll be remarkably still undecided vast majority of people will not have voted yet so i think that really like for better or worse what these early primaries accomplish is establishing you know media narrative establishes like who's got momentum who's who's winning it's it's kind of where the rubber meets the road in terms of what the the polling has been telling us and so like for example one of the the big things that came out of Iowa was, first of all, Sanders performed really well. Buttigieg performed really well. He mm-hmm. got a lot more attention after Iowa. Biden performed pretty poorly in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I think that did a lot of damage to uh, to his campaign and, and to his, you know, quote unquote, momentum. I think that's what I'm really curious to see is like, what are the the narratives that will come out of, of South Carolina? Oh, yeah. you know, how do we count the ways? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also think beyond media narratives, though, and I think especially this year, you do have quite a few voters who, you know, and I'm sure some who are voting Saturday in South Carolina, some who are voting on Super Tuesday who don't know what they're doing yet. So it's also interesting there there might be some more influence there in terms of voters seeing who wins, you know, not just shaping that that narrative, right, that we're trying to to put together, that journalists are trying to to make sense of, but um, definitely has influence, right, for how many people this year seem to have not made up their minds yet, right? Yeah, I mean, even the, the latest Winthrop poll, which is a South Carolina-centric poll and considered kind of the gold standard of political attitudes in the state. They just released a poll recently, and I found this data point almost more interesting than the numbers tied to the candidates, which is that 18% of the more than 400 likely Democratic voters that were polled were undecided, flat out. So that sounds small, right? That's that's the tip of the iceberg, because 55% said they're very sure about who they're vote, voting for. But then here's here's the real clincher to me. 43% said they might change their mind. Yeah. I was shocked by that number. 3%. That's almost half. Yeah. I'm not good at math, and that's almost half. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the field is wide open, and there will be a debate in South Carolina, and Michael Bloomberg will again be on the debate stage. And if you watched what happened in Nevada, you know that having Bloomberg on the debate stage could bring out more claws than a lot of voters and viewers have seen in the past from these Democratic candidates. And it's going to be a very interesting dynamic here because South Carolina is one of the states that Mayor Bloomberg decided not to participate in. He will not be on the ballot here. There is not a write-in option. So I'm very intrigued about what that debate will or will not do, whether it will shake the trees, whether it will not. Uh, And and let's not forget, too, that if we go to kind of the old school traditional standard of politics in the South, um, usually like big name endorsements carry a ton of weight. And in South Carolina, there is no greater endorsement than to get the support of House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. Clyburn is not announcing his endorsement until after the debate. 
So there's a lot of time between now (laughs) and that February 29th primary that could really shape people's opinions and minds. And I I don't know what's going to happen. And Mm. I'm really happy to say that I don't know what's going to happen because there are a lot of storylines that we're expecting to watch, like whether or not this is Biden's last stand or whether it's his Waterloo moment, we're going to have to see. Because if he limps out of Nevada into South Carolina and doesn't win by a significant margin here, is it really a win for Biden? Is it really a win that would be strong enough to propel him Mm -hmm. onward? We don't know, to your point about momentum. What was the original question? Uh, (laughs) This is what happens in the primary, you guys, and I just got way too close to the mic. This is what happens. There is so much stuff that's still unknown. We do not come in with a set idea of what's going to happen. We've just been watching things on the ground. But yes, I mean, 43% are undecided. The field is wide open. Who is going to be taking advantage on the ground in particular of this fluidity in this race is something that I think is going to be paramount. So I've already heard from some people that they've decided they're not answering their landline for the rest of the month. <laughs> um, and and I have also like watched people canvas in the rain. So we're going to see whether that ground game is really going to move the needle. Yeah. Because um, there is no substitute for face-to-face interaction well, when that, you're talking about politics. You know, you know what you just mentioned? You, you, you mentioned uh, people trying to avoid all of the political messaging. Um, and that reminded me of uh, another candidate that we haven't talked about yet, yes. who I think is going to, who's, who's kind of put a lot of eggs in the South Carolina basket, and that mm-hmm. is Tom Steyer. You've seen his face everywhere. You have, everywhere. Yes, everyone has seen his face and if seen his eggs. Yes, if you have driven down especially a road if, if, <laughs> Listen, though, if you live in South Carolina, you have seen his face a lot. And heard his voice. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and gotten his mailers. Yes. Yeah. He has been blanketing the state with advertisements uh it has been really incredible to watch what that money has yielded Um, because in addition to spending this money on advertisements that have been inescapable in south carolina he has also been spending significant amount of time here Mm -hmm. so for all the parallels that are made at the national media between bloomberg and steyer as these two bad boy billionaires bloomberg is running a, a strictly media heavy ad campaign right didn't, now didn't his wife move here tom steyer's wife cat did move to columbia south carolina right and that is how invested yeah. steyer is in this state it's intense yeah so and the interesting thing too is that it's not just like wow we see him everywhere in south carolina it's the fact that he's actually registering yeah. in these polls and he is getting endorsements he got the endorsement of edith child's Edith Childs is a huge name down here, but to readers who may not be familiar with South Carolina, you will know her as the fired up, ready to go woman from South Carolina who was synonymous with Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. She is a folk hero in South Carolina politics down here. And so he got Edith Childs. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and you're talking about, and why is that so significant? One, she's an African-American woman. Like the most coveted voter for Democrats right now trying to court South Carolina Democratic primary voters. Second, this is a race where Joe Biden has very heavily talked about his ties to the Obama presidency as his second in command as reason number one for why black voters can trust him to see them, to hear them, to help represent them, even though he himself is not. But he didn't get Edith Childs. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right. it's a really, really interesting dynamic um, that's playing out down here on the ground. And uh, I've I've been talking with folks and even like Gilda Cobb Hunter recently, who is a one of the longest serving um, black legislators in the state. And she's actually one of his national political directors now. And she was telling me that so much is being misconstrued. Yeah, Yeah, she's Stiers. Yeah, just for clarity. Thank you. Yeah. And so I was chatting with her about this, and and she she does not think that this national media that black people are going to vote for Biden and coalesce around him is going to hold true. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to have to see what happens. Yeah. But I cannot reiterate enough. I feel like I say this every time I talk about the primary here. Black voters are not monolithic. They're just as diverse and uh, and thoughtful in their vote right. as anybody else. Right. Yeah, I think that's yeah. so. I think that's going to be one of the one of the other interesting narrative lines coming out of of the primary is going to be. So so far, Steyer has really kind of not been a, a huge presence in Iowa or New Hampshire. Didn't really get a lot of attention in those states. Mm-hmm. Uh, so South Carolina, like I mentioned earlier, he's put a lot of eggs in this basket, and it's going to be. Probably the first state where he has a, a really decent showing, you know, might real realistically come in like second or third. Um, right. And he could be splitting the vote that could have otherwise gone to to Biden, to Sanders, to Pete Buttigieg, to Elizabeth Warren, to Klobuchar. We're just going to have to see what mm-hmm. his influence in this race will be. Another interesting hypothesis, and it is truly a hypothesis, is whether or not Steyer is going to be an interesting political petri dish for how billionaires can fare or how people right. who spend a lot of money mm-hmm. will fare. Specifically, whether or not if Steyer invested really well and heavily in South Carolina and then sees a return on those investments, could then it be possible that Mike Bloomberg in those Super Tuesday states where he has been investing heavily, could he then see – Mm-hmm. himself rise and so it's it's a little it's not an exact apples to apples comparison but it is something we're thinking about mm-hmm. so there's there's that <laughs> yeah so so to, to round out the rest of of the field um uh, actually before the show started emily reminded me of our candidate event tracker um which is this live feature we've had running on our site um now for a little while uh and it, the idea is we're just you know logging all of the events that that various uh, candidates have have put into the state. And, you know, if you the, the interesting thing is if you go on that right now and, and look, you'll you'll see a lot of names that you probably haven't heard of in a minute, you know, right? Because like this election cycle got started pretty early back um, several months ago. And, you know, the field was much wider. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I, I think Cory Booker still put in the most number of visits, at least according to our tally in the state. Um, Kamala Harris is up there. Marianne Williamson is up there. And of course, all of these people have have since dropped out of the race. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see that the current pack of front runners weren't necessarily the people that campaigned real heavily in the state in the beginning. Um, so what that leads me to, though, is as I'm kind of curious... Caitlin, like you're really plugged into like you you interface a lot with the campaigns mm-hmm. and how they're organized and what their strategy is and like what's going on on the ground. And so obviously, since Iowa and New Hampshire, um, two of the the candidates that have risen most dramatically are Buttigieg and Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw the other day Klobuchar hired a new uh, had a big new hire in in the state. And Mm -hmm. 
So these are people that haven't been campaigning real heavily in the state, but you know, now that it's South Carolina's time in the sun, uh, like what are what have you been seeing on the field or like on the ground and and working with these these campaigns? Is are they really ramping up their efforts? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the short answer is yes, but it only applies to one of the two that you mentioned. Yeah. Pete Buttigieg, yes. Amy Klobuchar, no. No. Amy Klobuchar had one staffer yeah. pretty much in South Carolina before Iowa and New Hampshire voted. Uh, she's trying to staff up a little bit now, but at this point in the race, it's unclear as to whether those staffing decisions will really be able to move the needle. Uh, we'll see. You know, you don't necessarily have to run a huge aggressive ground game to to rise, but typically, typically you do. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, his campaign has actually been very serious about South Carolina, mm-hmm. even though kind of the narrative that has been haunting his campaign in South Carolina in particular is that he's not connecting with African-American voters. And so whether or not he's able to then overcome that in South Carolina now that he is showing that, hey, I, I'm I'm pretty viable. I'm viable in Iowa. I know it's really white. I'm pretty viable in New Hampshire, also really white. We'll see what happens in Nevada. Because let's like step back for a second. Something that somebody told me at the beginning of this election cycle was that it's very simple. People want to be with the winner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like every for all of the the mulling around in the weeds that us political wonky types do, there's the human factor of a gut feeling that it doesn't matter how many mailers get in your mailbox, it doesn't matter how many ads you see, you know in your gut who you want. And whoever it is with that gut feeling in South Carolina is Yes, it's going to be very difficult to quantify, but we have to remember that human beings are not always logical, and sometimes they just vote with their hearts instead of their heads. Right. And whether or not this election is one for Democrats of heads or hearts is going to be something that I hope that um, we'll be exploring as we move forward. But Buttigieg, I went to a January 30th meeting that was held at their Charleston field office here. And it was about 10, 15 people in there. So on the on the surface, not a huge amount of people, but also the room wasn't very big. But when I got there, um, I actually picked up one of their February calendars and every single day was booked with phone banking, text banking, canvassing, get out the vote efforts. They had a plan in January saying that this is day zero for us. It's It's not the week of the primary. They were talking about it being day zero in January. I don't think that Klobuchar at that point in the cycle was focused on South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the challenge of this big chess game that we call presidential primaries of where do you want to invest? What will that show? And then can that then translate? So it'll be interesting, especially how Klobuchar decides to spend her time. If she does spend a significant time in South Carolina, that would be very telling. If she doesn't and instead goes on to Super Tuesday states, that too would be telling. And part of that is just the calendar logistics. There is not a lot of time between when South Carolina votes and when Super Tuesday states votes for that verdict to marinate. Right. Three days. Think about Mm -hmm. the gaps of time between Iowa, between – New Hampshire, between Nevada. For South Carolina and Super Tuesday, it's three days. Right. (laughs) It's three days. days. And so it really begs the question whether or not South Carolina could be a scene setter or whether it 
kind of loses some of its influence. We won't know and we won't really be able to see until after Super Tuesday as to what kind of influence yeah. the state has. But let's not forget, like, Super Tuesday states are going to be about 40% of that delegate count. By the end of February, we'll be at almost 70%. Mm-hmm. So this is a really crucial time, and South yeah. Carolina almost mm-hmm. is that really big kickoff point. So I feel like this is so interesting for political reporters uh, because in terms of this presidential election, the whole presidential election, I mean— in South Carolina, this is the time, right? I mean, when we're talking the general election, are candidates going to be talking about South Carolina that much? Probably not mm-hmm. quite Probably as much. Probably not as much, but um, maybe. Still, still definitely in the game. But in terms of just all of these interesting questions and this energy and this focus on South Carolina, this is really that time, right? This mm-hmm. is that this is that well, week. Yeah, and let, let's be real. I mean, if you're a Democrat in South Carolina, uh, come time for the general election, South Carolina is probably going to go red. Um, our electoral votes are probably going to go to the Republican. So this is really your moment in the sun. Like this is your moment to have a big impact on who the you know Democratic nominee might be, and. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's a that's that's huge. That's um But let's not forget Republicans will also have their moment oh, this week. May, well, yeah, that's true. If you're if you're a Republican in South Carolina, you may also have a a role in <laughs> On the eve of the Democrats February 29th primary, President Trump is coming to North Charleston to yes. hold a Keep America Great rally. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the timing of that, because that is that is yes. the day before the Democratic mm-hmm. primary. Now, I think Emily and I were, were kind of, it, it's odd. We were talking about, like, what what could the strategy here be? Like, because you're, obviously, you're not trying to. South like, Carolina is very much supportive of President Trump, yeah. broadly mm-hmm. speaking, in terms of its electorate, because it does fear Republican. Absolutely. But he's not trying to turn out Repub- – well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he supports this effort to, you know, get them to vote for for Sanders. But, I mean, big picture, you're not necessarily trying to turn out Republican voters ahead of a Democratic primary. So, so like, it, it is kind of curious what's the – What's the what's the strategy there? And I, you had a, an interesting hypothesis, you right? Mentioned. Well, yes. So let's talk about the fact that one, this is something that the Trump campaign is doing. Mm-hmm. He has been flexing his muscles right before a Democratic caucus or a primary in the other early states. He will do so. He's done so in Iowa. He did so in New Hampshire. He did so and will do so in Nevada. And he will be coming to South Carolina. And it's not that he's going to Michigan. He's coming to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And this is a state that should all but have his support locked up. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence was just here about a week or two ago. Um, And let's and and the big hypothesis here uh, is that Trump is coming to the Charleston area. And the Charleston area is home to the first congressional district and the first congressional district for the first time in nearly 40 years flipped from Republican seat to a Democrat seat when Joe Cunningham was elected. Trump himself in the 2018 cycle did try and exert influence in that primary, which was un. 
unprecedented mm-hmm. for the for the president to try and have an influence in the Republican primary. Let's right. be clear. This was not in the general election. This was in the Republican primary. He was trying to get Mark Sanford out of that office, and he was instead urging Republicans to vote for Sanford's challenger, Katie Arrington. It worked. She got that nomination. She did not win in the general. Mm-hmm. So why President Trump is coming here is really, really interesting because this really is a show of strength in in showing that South Carolina really, for all the, the attention that's being paid to Democrats in the state, this is a really clear signaling that we know it's a Republican state. Right. Big wink, wink to the people who go out to his rally. And it is an opportunity for him to throw a punch at Joe Cunningham in his reelection bid. And Cunningham did vote on both of those counts to impeach the president mm-hmm. in the House. And Joe Cunningham's district is at the top of many national and state Republicans' lists of must-win seats. Yeah. So. Right, and that race yeah. is already well on its way. Right? right, because I don't have enough on my plate to be covering the presidentials. <laughs> I also will go ahead. I am also going to be covering the first congressional district race here, and potentially my worlds could be colliding in a very big way Yikes. when President Trump comes to town. And it's going to be really fascinating. It's going to be interesting to see if the president decides to single out one of those Republican candidates by name. That could be a really huge moment in that race. Right. So... Yeah. Here we go. And and if he does push for that Operation Chaos, what kind of an impact could that have on the primary the very next day? The rally starts at 7 o'clock at night on Friday. The primary for South Carolina starts 12 hours later at 7 a.m. on Saturday and then closes at 7 p.m. Well, that that leads me to, um, I think we can kind of wrap this up with uh, just some um, practical questions about about how you actually participate in this uh in this primary what uh what voters out there need to know um okay so you just you answered one of my questions so it starts at yes the polls open uh saturday morning at 7 a.m on february 29th and they will close at 7 p.m if you're standing in line at 7 p.m if you're not stay in the line you just have to be standing in the line when polls close in order to cast that ballot all right now if you have not registered to vote. Are you out of luck? Uh, yes, you are. Sorry. Yes, that, that <laughs> deadline has passed. But for clarity's sake, you did not have to register to vote specifically in this primary. You just have to be a registered South Carolina yeah. voter. You do not need a real ID to vote, but you will need a form of photo ID to vote. And where can people find out like what their polling place is? scvotes.org is the State Election Commission website. When you go to scvotes.org, you will see a list of options, one of them being like, check my polling place. Yeah, That's what you'll want to click. And the information it will ask you for is like your first and last name and I think your birth date. So it's not asking for your social security number. It truly is just a way for you to check, hey, I live on 123 Peach Street. Where do I vote? And what does my registration say? Does it say I still live at 123 Peach Street or does it say I live at the apartment I actually lived in before? Mm-hmm. So that's really important. If you're still in the same precinct, you can still vote. You'll just need to fill out a change of address form when you get there. If you're in the state but you've moved precincts, you may have to cast a provisional ballot. But again, you can still cast that ballot. 
it's just kind of puts a little asterisk on it that they need to make sure that you are who you say you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, wait, did you have another voting question? No, go, go right ahead. And for people who want more political news, more information, um, how can they find your newsletter? Oh, well, what is our URL? Is it postingcourier.com slash newsletters? It is postingcourier.com slash newsletter sign up. No, see, this uh, they, is they, uh, why we ask. <laughs> what, I, what I would tell people to do, though, is even easier than that, is just go to postingcourier.com, and then right up there at the top of the page, oh. there's a there's a nice little green button that mm. says newsletters. Yes, just click it. Just click right there, and then you have a nice mm-hmm. long list of, of every newsletter that we offer, yes. and uh, you can sign up for the Palmetto Politics newsletter right there. See, you don't even need me. <laughs> See, well, we need you to write the newsletter. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you do like, need that. I'm sorry, gets everybody. Up early to write that newsletter for I do. people. Oh, and I it, do. It, it's good too. And it's it's not um, it's not just a list of of headlines. It's uh this is this is my best like QVC. Oh uh, yeah, I really like it. I can see it. You impression. Know? And guess what? It's not 1999. It's yeah. free. It yeah. is free. You don't have to be yeah, a and if, subscriber if, if to those the Post lines and are busy, keep calling. Keep calling. <laughs> keep calling. But really, but yeah, if you call my desk line, I may not be able to answer because I may not be at my desk. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do just want to emphasize this is this is not just you know a list of of headlines. It's not just a list of the stories that we published. This is this is actually a thing that Caitlin gets up and mm-hmm. writes. It's great. It gives you analysis and insight. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially this week, we're going to have a lot of information. If you're yeah. if you're curious about whether or not a presidential candidate is going to be in your neck of the woods, we are actively corresponding with all of the campaigns to find out where these candidates are going to be for our coverage purposes, mm-hmm. but also where they will be for voters. Because at the end of the day, that's what who matters the most is getting in front of voters. So when we know, you will know. And you'll mm-hmm. know every morning at 8.30 a.m., Monday through Friday. Only five-day-a-week political <laughs> newsletter yep. in the state. So, primary. Bottom line. What, what What's going to come out of this? Clarity with the side of cluster. All right. Clarity with the side of cluster. Well, I know that I wish you luck this week and coffee and energy. And I know it's going to be a busy one for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> don't, don't forget to get out there and vote. Absolutely. Participate in, in democracy. Ooh. Please bar- borrow another uh, newspaper slogan, democracy dies in darkness. Don't let it. Turn on the light, y'all. Go mm-hmm. vote. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, I just want to reassure you, the podcast is back. And I am uh, happy to be here. Happy to have Emily here today and happy to have Caitlin here. Thanks, y'all, for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was fun. All right. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. See y'all later.